You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. We're, we're in a series of taking a look at encounters with Jesus. And this morning, we're going to take a look at what was maybe the most life-changing encounter with Jesus in all of the Bible? And it's Paul. Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church, a, a zealous guy, one who really wanted to put an end to this, what he saw as a, a really... Um, terrible sect of Judaism, and he went about doing everything in his power to bring it to an end. And the Lord used all of that as he brought Saul to his knees and said, you're the guy that I'm going to send to the Gentiles. Whoa. From persecutor to proclaimer. It's the title of our message this morning. So we're continuing this series in encountering Jesus. Saul was a Jew born and raised in a Roman province that was known as Cilicia at the time. It's on the southern coast of what we would call Turkey today. Now Saul was born as a Roman citizen. That was unusual for many in the Jewish community, right? So he's not born in Israel, he's born outside, he's born in a Roman province, and he is a Roman citizen as well as being a Jew. Now Saul was highly focused. He was committed to doing everything to the very best of his ability. He was committing to, committed to using all of his intellect, all of his energy, all of his tenacity, and he had a lot of it, to achieve whatever was out in front of him. Now, Saul's tenacity meant that he was both determined and he was persistent in achieving his goals. In 1941, in the middle of the Second World War, when things weren't going well for his country, Winston Churchill said in a speech at his former school, never give up, never, never, never give up. And then he sat down. The quote became synonymous with Churchill and his leadership of the United Kingdom through World War II. Saul had a never-give-up attitude. It made him a diligent student and a determined and a persistent Pharisee. Saul had been on a fast track to becoming a religious leader in the Jewish community. In Galatians, he tells part of his own story before he encountered Jesus. Listen to what he says. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. So before he encountered Jesus, this part of Saul's story tells us three things about him as a person. First, he was extremely zealous in his Jewish faith. Webster defines zealous as marked by fervent partisanship for a person, a cause, or an ideal. 
Saul of Tarsus, was a fervent follower of the Old Testament law. He was completely committed to upholding it, and it became his passion for living. Second, he says, I was advancing in Judaism more rapidly than many of my peers. You see, Paul was a clearly driven man, what we might describe today as a type A personality. The positive traits of a type A personality include self-control, motivation to achieve results, highly competitive, and the ability to multitask. The more difficult traits, however, that come with a type A personality include chronic competitiveness, impatience, aggression, even hostility. Clearly, he was competitive and highly motivated to achieve recognition among Jewish religious leaders. Saul had studied himself under a teacher known as Gamaliel, who is described in Acts 5.34 as a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. So Saul's credentials as a religious leader in the Jewish Pharisee community were without question. Third, Saul intensely persecuted the church. The word here translated intensely means exceeding. It means more excellent. It means beyond measure. What Saul did, he did with intensity, including persecuting what he thought was a heretical sect of Judaism. Later, after he had encountered the risen Christ, he was stunned to find out that he had actually been in opposition to God. Acts chapter 9 tells us the story of Saul's encounter with Jesus and the impact it had on his life. Acts 9, 1 and 2 says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Belong to the way. Jesus defined himself in the Gospel of John as what? The way. And so the early church did not call themselves Christians. They called themselves followers of the way. And so he was after followers of the way. Here we clearly see the zealous nature of Saul, his intensity with which he went about trying to eliminate what he saw as this heretical sect of Judaism. In verses 3 and 4, it says this, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? While Saul may have thought that this little trek to Damascus would be lengthy but routine, what he encountered was a supernatural event. A blinding light flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard someone ask him, why do you persecute me? It's interesting to note that those traveling with him heard the sound but didn't see anyone. 
Saul responded, who are you, Lord? And then came this life-changing response. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So this intellectual, highly motivated, highly driven Jewish persecutor of the church had come face to face with the one whose followers he had been zealously attacking. Jesus not only identifies himself, but tells him that he was the one that Saul was persecuting. The principle here is that to persecute his followers is the same as persecuting Jesus himself. Perhaps this is the reason that Paul later uses the analogy of the relationship between Jesus and his church. He says, Christ being the head and the church being the body. If the body suffers, the head also suffers. It's a lesson Saul would never forget. Up to this point, the new Christian church has almost solely been made up of Jewish followers of Jesus But Jesus announced to one of his servants, Ananias, that Saul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. The Lord restored Saul's sight, having promised to show Saul how much he would suffer for his name. Saul's conversion from persecutor to proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ was complete, but his ministry had only just begun. Acts chapter 9 tells us that Saul began to preach in Damascus, going to the synagogues, declaring that Jesus was the Son of God. Many of the Jews there were astonished, knowing that Saul had persecuted this new sect, and then they began to conspire to kill Saul. Saul's friends got him out of Damascus and he went to Jerusalem where after continuing to preach the good news fearlessly there, the Jews in Jerusalem also plotted to kill him. So Saul returned to Tarsus, his hometown, where Barnabas came to bring him to the church at Antioch. For a year, Barnabas and Saul taught at the church at Antioch, where Acts 9.26 tells us that the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians there. By the way, that was not a complimentary term. Christian meant little Christs. It was a derisive term, but it stuck, and we still use it today. Little Christs. By the way, Antioch, had become the center of the Christian movement. They'd been under extreme persecution in Jerusalem, and many had moved north to Antioch, and it had become the place from which the church really began to grow and send out missionaries. After Saul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, the Holy Spirit called them to begin their ministry there. Acts 13.9 tells us Saul, who was also called Paul, and thereafter referred to as Paul throughout Acts. 
Paul's ministry continued in what we call Asia Minor today and eventually reached into Macedonia and into Greece, establishing new churches and building them up in sound doctrine. In each case, Paul would go to the Jewish synagogues first to proclaim the good news to the Jews and then take it to the Gentiles. As Paul and Barnabas were going back through some of the cities where they had planted churches, one of their messages to each church was, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. How ironic that they were bringing the greatest possible news of God's love and salvation through the completed work of Jesus Christ and were met with suffering for the sake of good news. One of the key issues that the early church had to face was whether the Gentiles coming into the church needed to go through circumcision and follow the law of Moses. In essence, to become Jews before they could become followers of Jesus. The church determined this was not the will of God for the Gentiles, as he had done signs and wonders through them in the early days under Peter's evangelistic messages. So the church welcomed their Gentile brothers, and James, speaking for the church, said, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This was validated by the report of Paul and Barnabas regarding what God was doing in bringing Gentiles to to salvation across the Roman Empire. Paul and Barnabas planned to go back to the congregations that they had planted, and Barnabas wanted to take a, a young man with them, John Mark. Paul vehemently disagreed. Because Mark had been with them on an earlier mission trip, and when they were in trouble, Mark had deserted them. The disagreement between Paul and Barnabas led to having two missionary teams at work within the Roman Empire. Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas. They doubled their effort. By the way, John Mark grew as a follower of Jesus. He later wrote what is in your Bible called the Gospel of Mark. Paul's ministry was both rich and rewarding and full of tribulation. He recognized that this present world is not the kingdom of God, and he accepted everything that came his way as if through the hand of God. In his farewell to the elders of Ephesus, Paul said this, Compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Later, Paul returned to Jerusalem where the Jews attempted once again to kill him, but he was saved by the city's Roman commander. Again, how ironic. After this, he addressed the Jewish people and proclaimed the good news once again of Jesus Christ. 
The Roman commander, knowing he was a problem, decided to have him flogged. But when Paul revealed that he was a Roman citizen, he backed off in fear. You see, even a Roman governor couldn't punish someone unjustly. He had to be guilty of something. Paul was guilty of nothing. He was a Roman citizen. So the Roman commander had Paul taken the next day before the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was their religious council to find out why Paul's message had raised such a furor in the Jewish community. While there, Paul cleverly turned two of the Jewish religious groups against each other by bringing up the issue of the resurrection of the dead. See, there were two big factions. There were the Pharisees on the one hand, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. There were the Sadducees on the other hand, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. My dad was very fond of saying that was why they were very sad, you see. He turned them against one another. They got embroiled in a debate and the whole attention moved away from Paul. Festus, the Roman governor, wanted to do the Jews a favor. And he tried to convince Paul to go up to Jerusalem to be tried by him there. But Paul, being a Roman citizen, used his rights. He demanded a trial before Caesar. If you were a Roman citizen, you could actually demand a trial before the emperor. When King Herod Agrippa came to visit Governor Festus, he also wanted to hear from Paul. So Paul wound up testifying about Jesus before two Roman governors and the grandson of King Herod, the very one who had tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. And then Paul was sent to Rome for his trial before Caesar. On his way to Rome, Paul experienced many trials, including a severe storm, shipwreck, as well as a poisonous snake bite, which did not affect him. Paul was under house arrest for two years in Rome, waiting for a hearing before the emperor. But he didn't waste his time. In those two years, he was under prison guard by the Praetorian cohort, the emperor's personal guard, And he began to witness to them. This is what he says to the church. He says, now, brothers, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains... Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's very likely that some of the members of the Praetorian Guard not only heard, but became followers of Jesus as well. Paul used his imprisonment as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with a group of elite Roman soldiers Not exactly a group that you might have expected to gratefully receive it, but some did. It's impossible to overestimate the importance of God's work in and through the life of Saul of Tarsus, the one we know as Paul the Apostle. 
Most of the New Testament books were written by Paul. And when Martin Luther read Romans, it changed his life. It led to the great reformation of the Christian church. Luther concluded rightly that there is no salvation through the church, but salvation comes through placing our trust in the completed work of Jesus at the cross and at the tomb, exactly as the word of God says. His death and his resurrection alone provide the way back to the Father. Perhaps the best way to end today is Paul's hallmark verses to the Ephesian churches. He says this to them, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. So what can we conclude from Paul's encounter? And by the way, worship team, if you'll come back. What can we conclude from Paul's encounter with Jesus? First, the Lord chose Saul before Saul knew him to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Second, Saul was faithful to his calling, and he saw both the joy and the pain he experienced, both as coming from the hand of God. Third, Saul looked back at his past. He declared himself to be chief among sinners. But that understanding brought him to the place where he knew salvation came from trusting faith in Christ alone. He becomes the great advocate of saved by grace through faith. Paul understood this present world is not the kingdom of God. But for now, the kingdom of God is within all who have placed their trust in Jesus alone. Paul placed no hope in this world or its rulers. So how do we apply the truths from Paul's life to our lives today? I think first we recognize that we too have been chosen by the Lord. Chosen not only to experience him, to know him, but to share what he's done for us with others that he brings into our lives. You don't need to be a theologian to do that. You only need to share your story. How did you encounter Jesus? That's what we've seen today. We saw how Paul, Saul, encountered Jesus and it changed his life. That's what he wants you to share with others. How did you encounter Jesus? How has he changed your life? How is he 
changing your life. This is his call. In the Revelation, Jesus says it this way. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. May it be so for each of us. Second, we need to remember nothing touches us that hasn't come first through his hands. His promise is he won't give us more than we can endure and that he will be with us to the very end. Third, we need to remind ourselves that our salvation comes from placing our trust in Jesus alone. There is nothing, nothing that we can or that we need to do to earn it or deserve it. Like Abraham of old, when we believe God, he credits it to our righteousness. When you placed your trust in Christ, it was credited to you as righteousness. Fourth, we are called to be advocates of the great grace of God and how it has and how it is transforming our lives. You are living testimonies. And finally, we need to remember that this world is not the kingdom of God. It will never be the kingdom of God. But if you've placed your trust in him, He's placed his kingdom in you. If you're here this morning and this seems like new information to you, after this service, come up. I'd like to meet with you and talk with you and discuss your next steps in doing what Saul of Tarsus did following Jesus. If you're here, and you know that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and you're ready to take the next step in being his witness, you also come because we're going to help you prepare for what your real calling is. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.